I'm hitting record. All right, you should be ahead. recording always. As soon as we get on, record. You never know what's going to happen. I'm recording. Well, we have a guest on. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> They're here to be recorded, you know. All right. Recording. Hello. Pick up the funnies. The funnies that were happening before I hit record. Go ahead. Now, now, now it's, you missed it. It's over. This happens every time. <laughs> Y'all missed all the funnies. We always do have something funny happen before you hit record, and then you hit record, and then it's lost forever. And you can't go back. Impossible. The show. Go ahead. Matt yep. Weinberg is here. Yeah, this is the worst, <laughs> worst intro ever. <laughs> Matt Matt Weinberg is here. He's calling in from Manhattan. He he, own, he owns the Vector Media Group, right? Vector Media Group. That's the full name, there, right? I Matt? do. Yes, Vector Media Group Inc. I am a co-founder and a partner. And they have a great logo. I love their logo. It's a great Thank logo. You. Thank you. You know, we actually. Um, about a year and a half ago, we refreshed it. So it's always been this kind of like multicolored V, but um, it used to be a lot more blocky and angular. And now it's, um, I think it's better. I, th- I like the colors a little more now. They're a little brighter. It's a little more rounded. It's really nice. So, so um, Ian, you've known Matt forever, right? I, I guess so. I feel like I've known him for a while. I, I, I met Matt at Pierce 2014, I want to say, 15. Two, yeah. two peers is ago. Yeah, Philly, um, right? Yeah, Philly. And um, and uh, I liked you right away because you're in Long Island, and I'm in Long Island, and I don't know anybody else in Long Island. <laughs> that seems unlikely. <laughs> I, I literally don't know any other people in Long Island. And you run a consultancy of like a bunch of people, like 30 people now, and I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, it's actually we're up to um, 37 as of as of us speaking right now, so. That's crazy. So I went into I went into the office. Um, like I said last last uh, episode, I was going to give a, a lightning talk at Vector. So this is the Matt that owns the Vector that I give a lightning talk at. Um, and I showed up, and there's like a pillar there with Ink Magazine um, front pages, cover pages. It's like Vector Media Group, fastest growing company, 2013, 2014, 2015. I'm like, is this like a strategy for you guys? How to run the business? You just aim for the Ink Magazine cover. That's good stuff. Why not? How do you get? In, how do you get in, like list? I always wonder about that. Like, do you go to them and like submit yourself, or do they like hunt around on some whatever site? I don't know. I don't know how they hunt around. I assume you submit yourself, but how does that work? Yes, it's it's a combination. Um, we are constantly getting like magazines and companies and events and all these people reaching out to us, and it's always some super lame form email i'm sure they send it to ten thousand right. people and it's like you know we've noticed that you're leaders in your industry and yeah. blah, blah blah and that's always nonsense but with ink ink magazine is obviously a legitimate source and you apply you you literally go online you you uh you put in your information you have to get your information certified by you know an accountant or somebody else that is like an independent party that has access to your financials mm. you give them your revenue numbers from the most recently completed year and the th- three years ago, because that's how they do the fastest growing. It's uh, three years ago versus now mm-hmm. giving your employee numbers. And then a couple months later, you hear back if you made the list or not. Interesting. Well, that's pretty cool. That's and how's that, does that, uh, business wise, has that been useful? Yeah. It leads to a whole bunch of spam and stuff you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Besides the spam? I thought I lost you for, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. I lost you for a second. I was just asking if, uh, if it's been useful business wise to be on there. Yes. Like, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Absolutely. It's um I would say it hasn't brought us business, but it's um it's helped us close prospects because I think it helps us gain authority. You know, it helps us really show companies, especially when we're dealing with these big enterprisey type companies, which a lot of our clients these days are. Um, they want to know that when they engage a company, they're we're gonna be around in a couple of years, right? Because they don't yeah. wanna like rely on a company that's gonna be bankrupt in five months. So it helps us gain legitimacy when we're prospecting and when we're pitching companies, it's nice for us to be able to say, yes, like we've made the Inc. 5,000 list three years in a row. We've never taken outside investment. We've been profitable X, Y, and Z. I think it helps gain comfort and helps us close sales. Yeah. Like um, what I've been writing up some stuff lately. I'm going to be doing some more stuff about like enterprise sales, kind of light enterprise sales for, you know, smaller companies. And that trust part is so huge because, you know, somebody, they're not, they don't care a lot of times about the money so much, but it's the person buying is, you know, is their reputation on the line. And so if they pick a bad, you know, contractor in your case or with us, you know, they choose help spot. Um, and then we go out of business three months later or whatever, or we can't deliver. That's, um, that's a huge thing. That's one of their primary concerns. So definitely anytime you can have something that kind of validates you in their eyes, that's, that's huge. It's that whole, uh, nobody ever got fired for picking IBM thing, right? Right. That's exactly. Right. That's right. Exactly. We, we want to say, you know, nobody ever got fired for picking Vector Media Group. Right. <laughs> and they <laughs> haven't yet. They haven't, right? So. <laughs> I guess we wouldn't know, right? We just, right. that person disappears in our lives. And- <laughs> uh, you do have an awesome office. I'd like to say, I don't know if Ian's been there, but it's a I great haven't. office. I got to get down there. He's opened the invitation to me. I got to, I got to just go work down there for the day or whatever one day. And just it's nice. Out. It's one of those open, uh, you know, the, the office that takes basically the whole square block of Manhattan. Right. That type of deal. Yes. Yeah. That's how they do it down there. Yeah. It's great. So, I really appreciate your, your kind words under. You spend a lot of time. Um, complaining about getting there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the first thing. So he comes into the office. I say, Hey, how are you? The literally the first words out of his mouth are, I don't know how you go into Penn station every day. I don't know how you do this commute every day. I hate New York city. It is way too loud here. Like, Oh, Hey, hope you had a good day. <laughs> well, Penn station is the worst place on earth. I mean, that that's just a fact. But um, besides that, you know, I mean, <laughs> Andre, you, you've been into the city. You should, you should. I, I go into the city once in a while. No, but it, yeah, it's always like, like the worst part of being in New York City is getting to and from New York City. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I understand. But, you know, I, I commute. So I live on Long Island. I just like our, you know, fantastic host here. And he, um, I mean, I do it every day, right? Almost every day I'm in. So I come in, I go out, I do the commute and you get used to it. Yeah. I use my train time just to catch up on RSS and reading. And when I, um, when we first moved to Long Island, I had all these grandiose... Well, so I grew up on Long Island. Then my wife and I lived in the city for many years, and now we're back on Long Island. And all these grandiose plans of, oh, I'll like use my computer, I'll do all this work, I'll catch up on email on the train. And that that has literally never happened for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whenever I'm on the train, I feel like that you can't work on the train. I don't know, like you got that's like chill. That's perfect decompression time or whatever. Like you don't want to be, you don't want to be continuing your work day on there. Yeah, that's exactly right. How long does it take you to get home? Door to door. Let's see. I, I leave the office at 5.09 and I walk in my house at 6.13. So okay. it's, yeah. not, it's not terrible. That's nah. all right. It's funny. When we first met, I told you what part of Long Island I live in. And we're like 10 miles away from each other or something like that. And to Matt, where I am is like his old country. That's like where his relatives come from. <laughs> <laughs> the old country on Long Island. It's, it made, made the check north. 
It's true. I grew up on the South Shore where he is now, and now I live on the North Shore, and it's uh, it's two different worlds. You know, I have to stay away from the South Shore because I'm trying to get away from my roots. Hey, yeah, that's why I don't go to Brooklyn anymore. <laughs> then Andre, you'll be, you know, hopefully your your child will move to the North Shore someday, and like that'll be, you know, the circle will be complete there. That's Brooklyn right. to the South Shore to the North Shore, that'll be the progression. So I, I, I did like a bunch of searching around for videos of interviews with you and stuff. Uh, I'm fascinated by your business and everything. Um, and I found one that you did. A, a, see, I don't know what year it is, but I know how many employees you had when you answered that question in that video. And that was 14 people. So whatever year that was, you had 14 people. And during the interview, you said that you started the company when you were 13. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. I, huh? Do do you kind of want me to go into the background? Yeah, yeah just a I, brief background, yeah, so people understand what we're about. You, I mean, you guys have like two or three hours, right? Sure. Yeah, we go all night. <laughs> no, so I mean, just super briefly. Um, you know, I I grew up on the South Shore in Merrick, where um, you know, literally a couple minutes from where you live now. Yeah. And um, my I was friends with this guy Lee, who also went to school with me, went to elementary school together. We've been friends for years, you know, since second, third grade. And when we were in middle school and high school. It's hard to believe, but we just weren't that cool. <laughs> we weren't that popular. And um, we were very good at computers. And so we started like a little computer business. At the time, it was called, <laughs> at the time, it was called Goldberg Weinberg Computer Associates. Because those were our last names. And um, mostly our business was like in-office network setups. You know, you'd have a small business and they'd have like between 10 and 20 employees. They need just you know, on-site storage. There's no such thing as Dropbox or anything back then, right? So they need a server, they need email, they need an exchange, they need probably a way for people to authenticate, you know, locally, like Windows NT or whatever, um, Active Directory and all that. So that's what we did. We set all that stuff up and that was what we were doing. And we were making some, what at the time as high school kids, we, you know, we thought it was real money and good money. And, uh, that's when you know, the internet was around then, but mostly big companies were dealing with it. But that was kind of around the time that smaller companies were starting to hear about this internet thing and thinking that they should maybe get a website. I mean, if you're a small company, who do you ask about that? You ask your IT guys. So we right. started getting a lot of questions about that. Um, Lee took an immediate, Lee is my co-founder here. He took an immediate interest in the marketing aspect. I took an immediate interest in the development and programming aspect because I had always done like basic programming and those kinds of things just locally on my computer. And I, I mean, at that, we basically turned into a, a dev shop, you know, dev and marketing shop. Uh, we went to college. We worked, we're working at the company nights and weekends while we were in college. We graduated. He went to Syracuse. I went to NYU. Um, we graduated. We both took day jobs and I was working for the New York times, um, a division of the New York times. And Lee was working for an agency on Long Island. We, again, we worked nights and weekends. So I'd get home from work at 6 PM. I'd work at, at Vector for right. 6 p.m. to like literally 1 or 2 a.m. and wake up at 6 a.m. to go to the job. And at some point we were doing enough business that we decided, I mean, it's time. Like we should quit our jobs and really go for it. And so that was, um, we quit our jobs in uh, December, November of 2010. And then we got our first office space in February of 2011. Wow. From there, it's history. So it's been actually, I mean, it was like a long run up because you obviously started so young, but then... It's been a pretty quick uh, growth rate since then. So did you have employees right from when you started there or you there was another year or whatever until you hired your first people or how did that part work, like yes. the transition? Yes, that was a crazy thing. That's one of the reasons we decided to quit our jobs because at the time we quit our jobs, we had not full-time employees, but we had, we had a part-time employee who was working two or three days a week for us. Like at that point, you're literally paying out more money than you're making in your day job, right. <laughs> you know? Right. 
It's so it seems like a weird financial decision. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, when we quit our jobs, it was me and Lee. We were, you know, barely making enough money to sustain ourselves. But it was fine. And um, we had a guy, Andrew, who still works here. Now he's full-time, obviously. He's one of our most senior developers. He was working for us two days a week. And so when we tell people how old the company is and we don't want to get into that whole history, we, we basically say five years. And if, right. yeah, I mean, from five years, it's been gone from just me and Lee to being almost 40 people. That's amazing. That's great. It, now, is what you do now mostly um, expression engine work or? Um, I would say about, I'd say about 40% of our work is expression engine work. Well, hold on. But to dial back on that one second, it's like, I assume you, so there's like shops who are like, they do expression engine and craft now is rising as the CMS is, but the, and they present themselves that way. But I assume you guys don't really present yourself that way as much like as a tech first right shop yeah right? that's correct so we used to um when we first started uh when we were smaller and it was just the two of us or even when we were up to like five six people you know i was speaking in expression engine conferences a lot we'd released a couple open source things and at that point we were primarily an expression engine shop right. so i would you know 99 percent of the leads we got incoming literally started with the phrase um i heard you guys know expression engine right, right. <laughs> you know, can you help me um and then what, what you find is as you grow, that becomes less and less. We start becoming known for other things and we, you know, our developers have other skill sets. These days, we do a tremendous amount of Python work. We do a tremendous amount of Node.js work. We still do a lot of expression work, a lot of craft work. But I would say as you grow, we become a lot less technical specific and more, and more like strategy and skill uh, and just general approach specific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now are you still doing a lot of websites though, or is that has a, a lot of it converted to like custom applications and things like that? It's, it's funny that I would say you could say like our 70% of our projects are websites, mm. but, but 70% of our hours are spent on applications. Mm. Like in other words, right, right. Our, our applications, we don't do as many applications by numbers, but the applications we do are way bigger. You know, yeah. if an express engine project or a craft project is, you know, anywhere from, uh, 75 to like five, 600 hours, our application projects are thousands of hours. Typically. Yeah, that's crazy. And do those usually come about as like you're building a website and that website needs something that's really a separate application and those are kind of working together or is it also just like we need this internal app that does something or whatever, or a SaaS that does something, that kind of thing? It's, it's been a mix. Um, a lot of times people will come to us wanting a CMS site, but they have so many custom requirements that no matter what CMS we use, whether it was WordPress or Drupal or Expression Engine, like Craft, it doesn't matter. We would have ended up rewriting so much of it that we're not even getting the benefits of the CMS anymore. Yeah. So sometimes at the beginning of a project, a client comes to us wanting a CMS and we do some kind of technical discovery and we say, listen, we could do the CMS, but we're going to spend so much time customizing it. You might as well just do a, a framework application at this point. Yeah. And on those kind of projects, like, how does that work with, you know, because one of the things definitely you hear a lot, you know, I know a lot of consultants, I think just from being in the kind of EE world a bit myself, even though I wasn't really a uh, consultant per se, but um, uh, it is, you know, the projects are kind of one off and then, you know, everybody's always looking for new projects and there's that kind of thing. Um, so do these bigger like app projects lend themselves towards like having a more ongoing revenue stream or how does that end up working out for you guys? Or, or is it still mostly kind of one-off projects and, you know, you're always looking for that next project? Very few of our projects, whether they're apps or CMS or whatever, are one-off. 
you know, yeah. the vast majority of our clients we have ongoing relationships with. That's great. I feel like that's the case as all the, you know, any kind of bigger consultancy you find, I feel like that's, that, that, I mean, it makes sense, but that's the case, you know, <laughs> that you need that relationship there that has that ongoing, that, you know, you're dealing with customers who need the ongoing support. And then also um, from your business's perspective, obviously that makes a lot of things easier that you can budget and plan and everything that you know, you have these revenue streams kind of ongoing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's great for, it's great for everybody. For us, we have ongoing revenue streams so we can plan our resourcing. We can plan our employees and our hiring. We can just plan and budget. But from our clients, you know, in a couple, you know, for some clients, it's really important to them just to know that we're there, you know, that they have somebody if something comes up, but also our relationships with clients that we've had for three, four, five years are amazing. These are clients that we, like in some cases, we've been working with a client more for longer than our primary contacts that the client have, you know, we've been through like three project managers on their side. Right. So we have a lot of institutional knowledge. And so we can explain why a lot of decisions were made and it just, you know, our team really understands that site as if it were our own. So I I feel like it has a lot of huge benefits to clients also when we can work with them for so long. So is there a, is there a tip you have for people? Cause I feel like I know, I know a lot of people on both sides, but I don't know as much about that transition point where you start out and you're dealing with a lot of like, build me a website and you build them a website and you know, pretty much they go their own way. Maybe you're hosting it for them and making a few bucks hosting it or whatever, but you know, and they might come back to you occasionally with, Hey, fix this thing or whatever, but there's not that more established. You know, we have a contract where ongoing, you're either getting hours or we have some kind of, you know, however that part of it works when it's a more established relationship. Like, was there something you guys did or was that just a natural evolution um, as you, you know, kind of got bigger customers and things like that? Um, well, yeah, I would say that first of all, as you get bigger customers, they start asking about it more. You know, right. if you're, I use, I use the term enterprise, which is not a great term, right? Because enterprise could describe like literally any number of different things. But when you're dealing with bigger clients, like they have budget that they. Oh, oh. what did we lose? We oh, lost did, that. Did, did, am I back? Yeah, oh, you're back. back. So, sorry about that. Um, you know, these, a lot of clients, they have budget that they purposely want to spend to make sure things go right. You know, they, it's a mission critical website for them. And so a lot of times with a bigger company, even in our initial presentation, you know, we go there for the very first time and present and talk about what they want and what we can do. You know, at that point, we're already talking about ongoing work, what our resources are like, what, how much support we can give them, what we can and can't provide. That's a very early conversation yeah. with, with our smaller clients. Um, it depends. Sometimes it's something that we can talk about from the beginning. Sometimes it's something they're not totally sure of, or they haven't figured out budget for. A lot of times what will happen is it's kind of, it'll be kind of like what you described. We'll build a site. It's great. It launches. Then a couple months later, they'll have some stuff they want to do and then some more stuff and some more stuff. And at that point, you know, they're, if they're every month coming to us with like 10, 15, 20, 30 hours of work, we say, well, listen, it would be a lot easier if we were just on a retainer with you, yeah. you know, and then we can, we can all plan a little bit better. Mm. How do you work out those retain? Like, what's your basic retainer structure? I'm curious about that. It's um, I, and by the way, I just just to clarify one thing. So I am mostly right now speaking from our development point of view because we have three core services here. We have mm. development, we have design and branding, and then we have search marketing. And our search marketing team is more than search marketing. They also do analytics, conversion rate, optimization, all those kinds of things. Right. I I lead our development team. So a lot of the stuff I'm talking about is generally applicable, but in the retainers details I'm about to get into, that's mostly on the development side. Okay, cool. Um, it's really just hourly. So we try to figure out with the client how many hours they need 
per month or we really work in two week sprints here, but let's, you know, we just do it per month and then we divide right. it up two by two to know how long, how many hours per sprint they get. Yep. And we just kind of figure it out with them and we don't lock them into any long-term contracts. So they're not in a one-year retainer. It's super adjustable. And, uh, we, you know, we say to them, if, you know, you use X amount of hours per month for the first six months and it turns out you need more or less, whatever, we'll adjust it. Yeah. But, um, we, we do that so that first of all, our project managers, cause we have a, we have a dedicated PM team here. They can do sprint planning, resource planning, all of those kinds of things. And they kind of know what's coming up. And so how much time we can fit in new projects into, but we also do it so that our PMs can have like weekly or, or twice weekly, or even daily conversations with the client and plan better. Because if the client gives us a list of like a hundred things they want to do, but we know that they only have, you know, a hundred hours a month with us, right. then you know, things have to be prioritized and the product manager can say, all right, we can fit in A, B, C, and D this month. And we'll have to move the stuff to next month, the other stuff yeah. to next month. It's fascinating. And has it always been sort of like a growth from existing clients or did you have to like concentrate more on selling to new clients when you first started out? You mean as far as retainers go or just No, just, just, just lead generation, things like that. Yeah, I mean, lead generation is, I don't even think it's a, problem we've solved right i don't think it's a problem any agency has solved like any agency you talk to is always trying to figure out like how do i get more clients and how do i get them in and i feel like i don't know i feel like every time we get a big client we're just lucky or something you know like i knew somebody and that person knew somebody and they recommended us and they recommended us and thanks to this chain of 20 people we have an eight hundred thousand dollar contract or something (laughs) and like if it weren't for that i don't know what would have happened but but that's how it always that's how it is with agencies that's um, how it is with everything too. <laughs> you know, I think that's kind of true of everything um, to some degree. I guess I stepped in the question. I opened up um, the forum, a forum thread for questions for you. And this was, I guess, one of the questions uh, from uh, uh, Sasa Tokik, I guess that's how I pronounce his name. So he basically had a, 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 the same version of the same questions, how your lead generation changed from when you were two or three people to now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird because it's very different, right? When you're a one to three person company, first of all, there's only certain kinds of projects you can bid on. If we, if we tried to bid on some of the products we bid on now, we were one to three people, we wouldn't have made it past the first round because these companies, they want a bigger team. They want to know that you can really give them resources. Um, but on the other hand, I, I feel like every agency owner thinks, and I'm myself included, I'm totally guilty of this, thinks like, oh, once you reach that next step, then the leads are just like pouring into you. Then it's automatic. It's like a funnel and it's like a machine, you know, like an e-commerce website, like Amazon. But I don't know. I haven't personally found that yet. Um, and I, I always think of, I always think of agencies being in these different stages. So I, I feel like there's, you know, one to two people, co-founders, the main people they are doing everything. That's one stage. You start hiring your first few employees. You're like between three and let's say six, seven, eight people. That's another stage. Then there's this like 10, to 20 person stage. Now I'm in right now, vector is in what I consider this like 20 to 50 person stage. And I feel like each time you hit this different stage, suddenly a lot of your processes need to change. And so we try to anticipate that. And a lot of the way you pitch projects and a lot of the projects you do, and a lot of the way you handle resources change as well. And as you get bigger, the, the sizes of each stage increase, uh, grow. So in other words, the first stage is only, as I said, is maybe like three to seven people, but the stage I'm in right now is this like 20 to 50 stage. And after that, it's probably 50 to 250 people, right? Things scale. So the the net net of what I'm saying is every time we were getting close to another stage, I always had this feeling like, oh, once I get to this next stage, 
leads are just be coming in. That's just how it works. It's a funnel, but it's not really how it works at all. And so right. um, we generate new leads the same way we always did, which is that we try to be known in the industry, in various industries. We try to gain authority by speaking at conferences and putting out white papers and just generally getting giving potential clients a sense that we know what we're talking about. And also by trying to do a really good job for our clients, which gains us referrals. Um, it sounds so stupid and silly. Like, of course, everybody knows that. But I find a lot of agencies end up in these weird adversarial relationships with clients when things don't go right. And what we found is that clients understand that sometimes things don't go right. And if you don't make it adversarial, if you really do a good job, they might still recommend you. <laughs> you know, right. we've, we've, had, we've had people that, for whatever reason, the project wasn't a super success years ago. And they came back to us because they just liked the way we work and that we were honest and they knew about us. Hmm. So that's, I feel like this is not a great answer to the question, but it's just, I think, the best answer I have. Well, I, think some, well, I just think so many businesses are like that. Even on software, it's like part of it is just being out there doing stuff and like just like stuff in quotes could be anything. <laughs> like you're, yeah, you're talking to conferences, you're releasing some open source widget, you're um, hosting a meetup, you're like it. And then, then that allows for that weird progression to happen of, we, you know, random person who was at your meetup tells their boss about you, gets you a half million dollar contract, even though like it was just something you were doing and uh, it wasn't even necessarily geared toward that specifically. But it's like you just by being out there, you are creating that opportunity. Whereas if you don't get out there, then um, that never happens. Yeah. That's and it's hard. You, know, you can't measure it, which is tricky. But <laughs> Yeah, that's frustrating. I feel like you know, we, we have a lot of e-commerce clients and they have, as I said before, this great funnel, you know, you have right. X amount of people coming to the site and X percent of them add to cart and X percent of them make it to checkout step one and X percent to checkout step two and X percent is your full conversion rate. I think for an agency to be able to do that, you need to be a lot bigger than us. You have to be getting literally like dozens or hundreds of incoming leads a month, yeah. you know, and then you yeah. could really track those kinds of things. And probably explicitly advertising a lot and things like that. Like, do you guys advertise like paid advertising at all or anything like that? We do um, paid search advertising on mm -hmm. some technologies that we think we're really good at. Yeah. And now do you focus just in New York primarily or are you just anywhere in the world or? Yeah, we, we have clients everywhere in the world. I would say um, most of our clients are in America. Mm -hmm. And I, then the interesting thing is a really small minority of our clients are in New York City, but those clients are probably our biggest ones. Right. That's mm -hmm. interesting. <laughs> because right. like they're finance or their media or they're just like these are companies with you know literally billions of dollars in revenue which is hard to find in a smaller city right like yeah. only some cities in america or in the world have those kinds of a lot of those kinds of companies so that's really interesting but do you think it is a factor that you're there like do you meet with them in person more and things like that or not really yes for sure yeah absolutely are you still involved in sales directly or how, do, how does your guys sales process like are you writing the bids or um going to the pitch meetings or how does that part work with you guys you and you and your co-founder or or not so much anymore no i mean i would say more so now like right. if anything i don't i don't personally do any development i right. haven't written a line of code in a long time and it was really bad right. yeah. <laughs> um i would say my primary the thing i mostly spend time on these days is supporting our biz dev team so mm -hmm. um you know we have a biz dev team here one of the our head of business development is another partner in the company, Stuart. He's not a co-founder. He, he came on as a partner a couple of years ago. And now we, he has um, like a business development executive that works under him. And typically they will work on proposals. They'll outline the whole thing. And then they'll reach out to the, our different functional departments to get specific information estimates. So 
if it's a development, if it's a contract that has, for instance, development and marketing, he'll, our biz dev team will reach out to me and Ben, Ben's our director of technology on the development side, and Lee and Jivan, who's our director of marketing on the marketing side, and say, here's the scope. What are you guys thinking as far as estimates? Can you put this together? We need it. Oh, we also need answers on this and this and this questions. And they'll kind of assemble that information into a proposal. And then, I, yeah, I go on a lot of client pitches and meetings and all those kinds of things. Yeah. It's powerful when you can offer more than just development. I feel like um, that seems like a, it's a big plus versus just being a pure development shop. Yeah, I mean, the, the old um, sort of piece of recommendation for consultancies is that you have to offer like a solution. All they want is the solution to the problem, not just a programmer. But right. it's kind of hard when you're just a programmer, right? You kind of have to be the size of uh, uh, an entity that you could provide the solution, right? Or the have solution. the co-founder who's interested in that side of it, maybe, or whatever, you know? Right. Yeah, but I think that's what happens is you change size. So when we were, you know, four people or five people or six people, we we weren't we weren't even eligible to do projects that we would have had to offer strategy and these kinds of things. We wouldn't have been considered anyways because we right. were small. So at that point, it was worth specializing. It was worth saying we like just focus on this technology and development and these specific things we do. And then as you go and get more things, it becomes easier to expand and, and to get bigger contracts, you start needing to offer more services anyway. So I think it's a function of how big you are. Okay, let me just cut in here quick, uh, because this week we're sponsored by Linode, who's sponsoring us uh, all this season. Um, Linode, fantastic uh, Linux-based hosting company where you can get um, your virtual servers up and running, super easy, have API, um, they have a great control panel, 24-7 support, um, all modern processors, all SSD, money-back guarantee, actually. So really great. They just uh, moved to KVM. So they've had a huge performance increase on their already extremely fast servers. Uh, and best of all, just a, a couple of weeks ago here, they changed their pricing. So that now even the base plan, which is just 10 bucks a month, gets you a two gigabyte server um, with a full CPU. So it's really an amazing, incredible deal. Uh, when I think back to not that long ago, uh, when I was buying physical servers for Userscape here and paying five, $6,000 for them uh, for a server that was significantly slower than this. Uh, now you can get the equivalent uh, machine for 10 bucks a month and really amazing full CPU, two gigs of RAM, uh, 24 gigabyte SSD and uh, everything you need to get rolling. If you need more power, you know, the next plan up is only 20 bucks a month, four gigabytes and so on. So really amazing. With our offer code, you can get $20 off. So that's going to give you two months of of the base version or one month of even one up from that. And uh, just great, great value there. So check them out. Um, you can go to linode.com slash bootstrapped FM, and that'll be in our show notes. Again, that's linode.com slash bootstrapped FM, and I'll get you 20 bucks off. So definitely try it out. We use it for everything here, Userscape, all of our marketing um, sites, all of our uh, kind of internal apps and things all on Linode. And it's really handy because we just we basically just have an app, one server per app, ten bucks a month. I know it's completely completely isolated, and I don't have to worry about it at all. Uh, so really great, solid, great support. Check that out um, when you can. Linode.com/slash/bootstrapped.fm for twenty bucks off. Thanks again to Linode. So you guys, you don't have products, right? It's just the we, services. Last year we acquired a um, a popular expression engine e-commerce add-on called Cartthrob. Mm-hmm. So it had been kind of abandoned by its previous creators, and we do a lot of e-commerce 
work in expression engine. So we acquired that. So we do have Cartthrob. And then a couple of months ago, we acquired another e-commerce add-on for expression engine called Brilliant Retail. So we didn't make either of those from scratch, but we do have those two products, Cartthrob and Brilliant Retail. I didn't know you bought Brilliant Retail. <laughs> we, yeah, it was, we announced it a couple of weeks ago. I remember uh, a quote from you I liked uh, from the interview I heard years back where um, the, the host was asked you the same question and you said, no, we don't have any products. And he asked, well, what, why don't you, uh, what do you do to sort of diversify yourself and minimize your risk? And you said something I love. He says, like, if I wanted to hedge the business, I would diversify our clients instead of worrying about products. Yeah, I always love that response. <laughs> I agree. I still agree with that. Um, you know, we, we bought these products, honestly, not as direct revenue streams, but, and we're very open about this, but more as just like lead generation for our services business. You know, the, a Cartthub license is $300, or I'm sorry, it's $250. And it's important to us that, well, a couple of things are important to us. First of all, it's important to us that Expression Engine has a very good e-commerce product. Like that just happening is very important to us because we do a lot of EE work and it's, if it has a good e-commerce product, it's going to be taken more seriously. And so the idea that Cartthrob was not getting supported anymore is not good for us. You know, we wanted to, there's a, there's a, going back for a second, there's a very good Joel Spolsky article where he talks about making your, your company's compliments cheaper. So if there are things that are complementary to your main business line, you should do what you can to make those things more affordable because it helps your main business line. So for us, making a making sure that there's a really good expression engine e-commerce add-on out there makes our main business line, which is services, more attractive. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing. Second thing is, in general, it's good for our business to be seen as authorities and around e-commerce. So it, it's good for us. We don't really make a lot of money from the $250 licenses. We've made orders of magnitude more money just from incoming leads, people contacting us saying, you know, oh, we saw you own Carthrob. I have this custom project for you. So that's our real business. Have you been able to, uh, first of all, uh, they're, they're help spot customers. So just throw that plug in there. But, um, but also, uh, have you been able, like, are you guys able to get leads from like the actual buyers of Cartthrob and Brilliant Retail? Or um, is it more like that, that glow around it that everybody knows you guys are, you know, run these and um, it kind of comes in from that like secondary? It's both. You know, a lot of the business we've gotten is, you know, a developer made a, um, made a site for somebody years ago and it was expression engine and used Carthrob and the site really got super popular and it got so popular that the, that the, um, the client kind of outgrew that original one to two person shop because now the client's doing millions of dollars or they're syncing right. with Salesforce. So they have an ERP system or 3PL or whatever they need to handle. So we, we, in a lot of cases, they come to us and say, all right, you guys must know what you're doing because you own this product. Right. And we're, you know, a bigger company. And so it's easier for us to sell those kinds of things. Do you, uh, do you guys have like a floor now on these projects? Like, is there a minimum that you don't really go below at this point? Or will you still kind of take on, not, I assume you don't do like a thousand dollar project, but is like, have you go, gone into like, we don't do anything less than $20,000 or something like that. You don't have to give me an exact number, but um, do you have some like minimum now you kind of deal in? It, it's very dependent. So um, if, Somebody comes to us and it's a thousand hour project and like we, or a $1,500 project and that's just a one-time thing and they're a very small client. It's probably not a good fit for us and we'll probably just refer them to somebody. Yeah. If we think there's a lot of potential and 
they, they're just using a small project at first to try us out, then mm-hmm. we will absolutely do it and we will waive any minimums because we, and we've, we have a lot of projects now that are six-figure projects that started as, you know, quick, literally 15 to 20 hour, can you guys fix this on our site? And we did a yeah. great job and we proved that we know what we're talking about. So we want to be careful not to dismiss those. Oh, that's interesting. Interesting, interesting. Hmm. So hmm. much to this. So, how, so I saw, <laughs> I, I'm just looking at the website. So Brilliant Retail, you're going to fold that into Cartop, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, Brilliant Retail was totally abandoned by its creators. And okay. um, it doesn't make, and it was never updated for Expression Engine 3. And, hmm. you know, it doesn't make sense for us to spend engineering resources like upgrading that to Express Engine 3 after we just spent all these engineering resources upgrading Cartop's Expression Engine yeah, 3. Yeah. So it makes more sense to just make sure people are, you know, have an upgrade path and they can move to Cartop and that there's a company, namely us, behind it, you know, helping them. So that's really the plan. So that's pretty cool. I like this model of like, um, you know, acquiring these products that are in the, like, a, you know, the EE ecosystem is still a pretty strong ecosystem and um, there are products that people are using and that are useful that, Obviously, this takes a little bit of money uh, versus, you know, if, you're, if you don't have any money, then that's more difficult. But um, if you have, you know, I'm assuming these weren't, you know, multi-million dollar purchases here. So, uh, you know, with a little bit of money, you can kind of get involved in the community and, um, again, kind of get your name out there and do all those kinds of things without necessarily a huge investment. I'm sure it might even been more of an investment, the development time um, to kind of upgrade them and things than, than the cost. So, yeah. Are, are these uh, open source expression engine products? So brilliant retail is uh, Cartthrob is not. Oh, so how does ne- how did it work? Ne- no, neither uh, neither was open source as in free, right? Their their source is open, or brilliant retail was actually open source, like so MIT. Brilliant, brilliant retail used to be a product, like a paid product, okay. and its original creators basically abandoned it and decided they didn't want to work on it anymore, and kind of as a gift to the community, open sourced it. Uh, Cartthrob nice. has never been open source. We we do have a couple. Expression Engine and Craft add-ons that are all open source stuff. Okay. No, I was just trying to figure out how the mechanics of changing ownership for an open source thing would be, but okay. Right. So for Brilliant Retail, what we really bought is like the website, the um, the branding, the logo, just the ability to use the name, like those kinds of things. Okay. Gotcha. You mind fielding some questions we got off that forum thread? Yeah, of course. Oh, I have a question for you. Do all of these questions surprise you? Like you've been doing this for a while and I'm sure you get all the same sort of questions and are they like, oh, this is completely obvious. Why, why are people asking me this? And everybody's asking these sort of, how do you go from freelancer to consultancy type of questions? But like, I keep wondering if these are like totally obvious and not surprising to you. So you may be wondering why is everybody asking them? No, I don't. It's, it's the opposite. I, I'm, I'm not surprised anybody asks. I ask these questions all the time. Like I, um, you know, something I always tell people, in fact, at the meetup that you were at the other night, I, I asked, I had asked a couple of people to speak and they, people always say, well, I don't know. I don't know anything. And I always tell people like, you don't, almost nobody gives themselves credit for knowing things that other people legitimately don't know. Like basically anytime, especially in our industry, especially with developers, I notice you say developer, oh, you should write an article about this amazing thing you did. But every developer assumes that the thing they just learned and figured out is just totally obvious to everybody else when it's not true in any way. And so like, I totally get it. It's no, none of us in this agency world, like really know what we're doing. You know, you kind of hope that you look into things and just have a feeling of what to do. But I also feel like, um, Again, when I was, when we were one or five or 10 person agency, 
I thought that at 40 people, I would have all the answers and just not the case. So now I think that, it, you know, a hundred people have all, all the answers and it probably won't be the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. Uh, well, and also there's also with, like, in terms of that, um, the original part of that, it's like you, you all might know the same technology even, but then it's the context you use it in, um, might be the interesting part and how you use it in a certain context as opposed to just like, even I think Andre did a talk right about, uh, I wasn't there, but, um, APIs for mobile apps. So a lot of people have probably built an HTTP API, but then the context of a mobile app, you know, that's an interesting subset that has its own challenges and everything. So totally. I mean, I mean, the other thing also is that everybody is different and just going back to the agency talk, like you people hear what I'm saying and then you could hear other agency owners and they'd say so totally different things. Right. So I think everybody kind of has to listen to, I think it's always beneficial to get as many opinions as possible and then decide what you think is right. So it doesn't surprise me. All right. Let's feel some questions. Uh, John Hargrove. Uh, he asked a bunch of stuff that like he was really interested in. in yeah, let's let's pick a few of them. Format and stuff. So list. He was asking how much salary buffer did you get for your first few hires? Like, I'm assuming that means what runway you had with uh, your bank accounts and stuff when you started hiring. Uh, we we have always been much more conservative than other agencies. Like, I, I have a lot of agency owner friends. There are size are a little smaller, a little bigger. We've always been much more conservative about hiring. So if anything, we've always hired a little bit too late, like made sure we had tons of buffer, made sure we had plenty of work. If anything, like under-resourcing projects, feeling like we're like panicking because we can't execute them and then hiring. So in our case, it was never a number. We never said, oh, we need three months, six months, whatever. But the rule that I use is, are we like super suffering? Are we just like really dying here without somebody new? If that case then we should hire. If it's just a case that, oh, it would be nice to have somebody, I don't want to hire. It's not worth it. I don't want to risk it. So this kind of goes back to that, the question we were talking about though, in that, like, I feel like, yeah, you know, a lot of agencies who have that hard time getting past that, you know, if you're always hiring, right? Like, how do you break through that to build up enough buffer, right? So it's like, so did you, um, because, you know, you only have so many hours, you're charging for these hours. And you'd said you do kind of work hourly. uh, So instead of like, presumably you're not, able to get um I, I don't know like how do you build up that buffer would you get like the a, a couple of really big projects and you're able to do that or do you make sure you're always recharging enough enough being like not just that you're you know covering the cost plus 25 percent or something but like you're really you know correctly charging people what a lot of people would probably consider a lot of money even when you were a smaller agency um because you know a lot of developers tend to undervalue and they'll say well i do for 75 dollars an hour or whatever and that's obviously not enough um so I don't know if there's any kind of aspect to that to, again, like build up that buffer or is it just like you guys killing yourself in the beginning um, to, you know, do a lot of your own time into things so that you were kind of creating that buffer by including your hours and things like that? Yeah, I think first of all, at the beginning and even now, like working very hard and killing ourselves, I'm not killing ourselves. I think it's a lot more relaxed these days. But um, one, one of the things we always did was get contractors. Like, let me rephrase. We don't have. When I say we have close to 40 people, that's all full-time employees. But one of the ways that we've always decided when to go in the past is if we have a project and we need an extra five, 10 hours a week, get a contractor. And, mm-hmm. you know, ramp that contractor up over time. But what I found is at, if you get to a point where you're consistently paying a contractor like for 20 hours a week or 25 hours a week, at that point, financially, it probably just makes sense to hire somebody full-time. Yeah. So that's what we've always done. Like we... We are all our internal resources are full. We hire contractors. 
if we are getting more business, we um, ramp them up, ramp them up. Oh, the contract is at 20, 25 hours a week. All right, let's, let's start a job search. We should hire somebody at this point because it's costing us more money to have this contractor. And where do you get these contractors? I always find out every time I ever tried to hire a contractor ever for anything other than maybe design, it's always a complete and utter failure other than when uh, Andre does stuff, but that doesn't count because he's Andre. So <laughs> like, I don't know. I can never find, con- like, do you literally just go on the boards or is it just being part of the community? I know since you guys are in the EE world, there's a lot of contractors. Do you just have people like kind of who you know and you're able to bring them in the fold or how, how has that worked? Yeah, it's, it's people I know. I've yeah. almost never hired like random people. Right, right. Because that's just a weird recipe for disaster often. I mean, a lot of times it's not, but you know, I, in general, Hard, my, right? in general, my preference has been to hire people that I know. And you know, if your margin hurts a little bit at first, your margin hurts a little bit at first, because at the end of the day, you're, you're hurt, you're suffering your margin a little bit, but you successfully do the project and now it's in your portfolio and you get the experience and you can point to it and you prospect other people. So there's a lot of benefits. Yeah. That goes back to trust, right? The big vector media group gets products, uh, projects because of trust and the little subcontractor gets vector media groups right. projects because it's somebody Matt knows. Exactly. And I will say that our trust, it's very easy for a contractor to break our trust and then we will cut you off. So, you know, we, we prefer honesty. If a contractor can, um, can't deliver something, they're going to be running late and they are upfront about it and they tell us, that's fine, we can handle with our client. If they become totally unresponsive, and, and this has happened to us, they become totally unresponsive, they're not executing what they said they will, that's fine. We'll, we'll figure out something else, and then honestly, we'll just won't work with them again. Because we, you know, in this world that we live in here, like, trust is basically the only thing we all have, right? Yeah. So once you break that, there's plenty of other people that won't work, so. So uh, let's get through the, some of these other things. I think uh, we covered a lot of what John's been asking, like revenue sources, whether a lot of your stuff is coming from. Um, uh, um, yeah, we covered most of this. Um, nuke stuff or uh, recurring revenue from like support and stuff like that. Uh, utilization, what do, you, what do you aim for the utilization? Basically, oh. are you aiming for like full-time hours for every one of your developers before you move on to hiring a new developer? Or do you give them time for other things other than like billable hours yeah so um and again just to clarify a lot of the stuff i've been talking about and the answers i'm about to give are most on our development right. side right our if you spoke to nick who heads design or lee who heads marketing they they would say broadly the same things i'm saying but they have different kind of interdepartmental you know policies and utilization all that but um we so we ask our developers to at least log 35 hours a week and in this question that was submitted, I see there's mentioned, you know, 2,080 hours a year and 2,080 hours a year is 52 weeks times 40 hours. So um, we're not quite like that, you know, because people take vacation, like people take weeks and weeks of vacation and we want that and that's fine. So we ask our client, we ask our developers to log like 35 hours a week, but that doesn't, isn't necessarily all billable. I would say at the majority of the time, the majority of it is billable, but if we're having a slow month or a slow couple of weeks, or we just want to focus on internal stuff, like that's fine too. And we, our project managers try to treat internal projects like real projects. That means they go in the sprint planning, you know, they get, they go in the agile process, they go in JIRA and all of these things. So I feel like, I feel like as long as, as long as our team is hitting, I don't know, 80, 85, 90% utilization as far as billable stuff, maybe even a little bit less if we're super slow, but, but more than that, if we're really busy, I think it's a good, a good place for us. So how does that work mechanically? Like a developer comes in for the weekend, he works on a bunch of things, some of the client-related work, some of it is whatever, internal work or whatever. And then he or she files what they worked on and how many hours each day and then 
somebody else makes the decision on what's what to apply that to, whether it's billable or not? Um, yeah. Okay. So I should clarify. Like, the, obviously, our developers aren't deciding personally what's billable or not. Like, right. I've, if we decide to, I, I guess I should say we expect we ask to see thirty-five hours a week locked, and if you know, if that's 25 hours a week on project one and five hours on project two, and then we assign them to some internal stuff and they like five hours on that, like that's fine because mm-hmm. they, they kind of did what we asked and what was planned in the sprint. And they work with our project managers to figure out what they're going to do each sprint based on our contracts and what they're good at and what, you know, they're working on and just project priorities and all of that. Um, and then when we do billing each month, we kind of decide, all right, if we went over on a certain project, but we decide just to kind of eat that as a measure of goodwill like i decide that on the back end with our billing with our with our bookkeeper that there's no effect on like what the actual developer did mm. yeah, what you guys use? So, sorry go ahead i just gonna ask what they what you use for uh time tracking we use jira we use okay. jira agile which basically we use for project we don't use Basecamp or anything like that we use jira for everything yep. that means all of our clients are in jira we use it to do our sprint planning we use it to do our um, agile planning and we use it to do all of our time tracking and everything. Yeah. I was going to ask how strict you are with the hours. Cause I remember you, we had that conversation at the office that, that meet up that uh, uh, you were looser with the, for example, the support or the training part of your contract, like the client needs training after you deliver what you need to deliver to them. So you, you might be a little looser with that in terms of how much time you give us uh, as opposed to how much time was specified in the contract for that, but how how strict are you in terms of development hours as far as what's billed and what's not? Like I find myself a lot of the time I'm basically we're two people, me and my wife, and we we I find myself being very loose with that. Like for our estimates, go one way, and then depending on the relationship with the client or depending on the circumstances, we'll wind up taking a haircut once in a while for what we do in terms of what we bill. Uh, we, we're the same way. You know, sometimes we just have to make the decision that, well, okay, sometimes it's on purpose and sometimes it's not. Like sometimes we have a client, it's a great prospect for us, or not that it's a, it's a client at that point. It's a great project. We think there's a lot more work. So we kind of make the business decision, all right, we want to over deliver on this contract. Like the client's not going to pay for its own budget. We're not going to send them a surprise bill. But yeah, we want to spend a little bit more time doing X, Y, and Z for them to really cement that relationship or really just do a fantastic job even if they only had a budget for you know a quasi fantastic job mm-hmm. sometimes you know as any development we just accidentally go over you know and in that case we kind of have to decide just on a case by case um if we if we gave the client a heads up about it and our pms were on top of it and handled it then yeah usually we would ask the client for more budget sometimes we in some cases we do if they just eat overage like any other agency does Okay. And um, uh, the final question from, from John, I guess, uh, uh, how strict are your contracts? Do you, like, do you prepare this big contract before you start on everything and everything is laid out there? Or is it more like you figure things out as you go along type of a deal? So our, our contracts, um, it kind of depends on the services we're offering. But let's say, let's say a typical contract where we're offering all three services. That means we're going to design the website or, or whatever, like the mobile app, whatever it is. We're going to build it and then we're going to market it. So typically what we would do is give them milestone milestones on the payments on the design. So, you know, design, we're going to do, you know, wireframe, like a strategy session and wireframes and discovery, and it's this much. Then we're going to do visual design round one, and it's this much, and those are all fixed. At that point, we'll also give a development estimate. But as design is happening, we'll, we'll revise those estimates if needed. You know, if during design, the client adds a whole bunch of really expensive features or something, we'll make sure they understand that I'll have a... A, uh, an effect on the development scope. So we're always revising those. 
at the end of the day, though, our our development contracts are really based hourly. Um, it's time materials. So like we think this is going to be a thousand hour project. All right, your cost is going to be thousand hours times our rate. Um, and we again we have, we can do that because we have very strong project management here. So we have dedicated project managers. They're constantly keeping an eye on budgets, constantly keeping an eye on time. And so if we're trending over, we can catch that really early. If you don't have the ability to catch this stuff really early, then it could be kind of dangerous because then you go way over and and mm-hmm. then the client's not going to want to pay for that, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that whole PM part of it is pretty huge. It seems like, especially with these bigger projects. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so important. And I remember when we first, we, we first hired our first dedicated PM at like, I don't know, 12, 13 people or something. And it looking back now it was way too late i was gonna say that seems so late like wow 12 people super late super late we should have done it way before and we did it because honestly we were dropping the ball on a lot of projects we didn't have good management and i remember thinking to myself like this is a really hard hire to make because this is the first person we're hiring that's not doesn't explicitly add revenue right you know right it's a cost center i thought but it's actually not a cost center a good pm team is is a revenue center because they're keeping your clients happy. If your clients are happy, your clients can give you more projects. Yep. So investing in our PM team is like the best thing we've ever done. Yeah, makes sense. That's the same with support is very similar to that. Like you think of it as a cost center, but really like they interact with the customers all day long, just like in consulting the PM, you know, is the primary interaction. And that person who's interacting with the customer is super important um, yeah, since they're absolutely. the main face to the customer. Absolutely. Yeah. That's how you get business. Yeah. I keep wondering, like you guys have pretty big customers. Uh, and uh, I keep wondering sometimes, like at a certain point, doesn't it become more natural for those companies to sort of build an internal IT team rather than sort of like keep giving projects to uh, to an external uh, consultancy like that? But a lot of consultancies are having a lot of work from a lot of like really big companies. Uh, it just seems strange. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things involved. Um, first of all, a lot of our clients actually do have very big internal IT teams and are coming to us with overflow work. Mm-hmm. In a lot of cases uh, at a big company, it's a lot easier for a department to get like, budget approved than people approved, right? Because if, you, if, you're, if they're asking for budget for people, well, that means they have to involve HR and there's benefits and there's all those kinds of things. And so the department head, it's much easier for them to just ask for money that they can use to contract the work to us. Mm-hmm. So that's just one like thing in our, in our very big, super bureaucratic clients. Another thing is, you know, everyone's resource constrained. Sometimes we're resource constrained. So a lot of our clients, they have internal teams, but those internal teams are focused on other things. A good example would be that we have a lot of finance clients. You know, our finance clients have big internal development teams, but those development teams are focused on like their internal trading platforms, mm-hmm. you know, like their internal actual like banking stuff that manages the money. So they don't really want to take somebody off of that to work on their website. They might as well just, it's better for them to hire us for their website. Um, in a lot of cases, they don't have the expertise. You know, it's, it's hard to manage developers if you don't have experience managing developers. You don't know how to hire them. You don't know what to look for. You don't even know how to hire a development manager. So in a lot of cases, our clients prefer to come to us because you know, we're working on a lot of different industries. So if, a fi- for instance, a finance client comes to us, they like it. They feel like they can get advice from a company like us that works with publishers, works with econ, works with all these people. We might bring them something that internally they might not know about. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's all those different factors. Gotcha. So, uh, Steve McLeod asks how you deal with the stress of having so many employees now. So actually just one thing I, I want to go back to one of John's questions, okay. which was, he asked at the end, um, was there a point where running a consultancy stopped feeling like 
filling up a leaky yeah, bucket. Yeah, I feel like you're going to say it never did. Yeah, it just, it just <laughs> never. I just wanted to make sure it, it never did. And I have like constant panic attacks about it still. So <laughs> it's never, it never stops feeling like a leaky bucket and just, I think, just the reality of running an agency. Well, it's so funny how all these things are the same. Like the same as software. Like I've been selling software for 11 years and it still feels like, ah, oh, this is the month. You still start month, at zero every right, month, right? You still start at zero. Nobody's going to buy. This will be the month they all stop their subscriptions and stop renewing. It's crazy. I, I feel like we should be able to get over it by now. But well, I, I tell people that I never have a, like a, a decent week. I, I have weeks where I feel like the, a hero. Like it's the greatest thing we're going to take over the world. And I have weeks where just everything's going to hell and I don't even know how we're going to recover from this like right. garbage on fire. But I never have like an average, right? Like we gained a lot of projects or we lost a lot of projects or something. So we always one of those. So you don't want to, you don't want to hear that from my perspective, from a freelancer perspective. You don't want to hear a person running a 30 company consultancy say that there are weeks where everything is on fire and I don't know how I'm going <laughs> to handle. I think it's just all the same. That's the, that's the thing. It's like, and people who say it's not, now I've become very dubious of people who are like, eh, it's all no problem. We're chill. Like, I mean, I know there are people who are like that and I'm trying to get there myself, but it's like, it's hard. And I, I think one of the things you have to do is like, you think about it, like your, um, the aspect of your business that stresses you. So selling licenses or getting new, new customers. But I think the key is to disconnect from a little bit more of a disconnection and caring about the outcome of if things dr- d- drop a little bit, you know what I mean? Which is super hard. Like, okay, if things drop a little bit, you know, how does that affect my actual life? <laughs> Cause that's like really the stress, right? Like that's, what's causing you the stress is like, boy, if things drop a little bit now, like you gotta pay for my house and you know, all the things that you have. And it's like, you know, it'll probably be okay. You know, like we're employable or, uh, you know, if business drops a little bit, we're still in business. Um, so it's not really the end of the world or anything, uh, right. but it's hard to have the outset when you're so like focused on, either maintaining or growing and then to be accepting of what well, it could go down and it would still be fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, all of that worry is sort of, that's the, uh, Steve's question of the stress of having employees. That's the root cause of all that worry, right? Cause you're not worried about whether you're going to be able to pay the car bill next month yourself. You're worried about making payroll. Basically, yeah. In, right? in between those two points, <laughs> once you're a little bit bigger, there's like, okay, well, if we go down a little bit, uh, you know, I can still pay my car bill, but if you go down a little bit more, yeah, can you afford to have as many employees? And you, you might have to go down and have less employees. So you're still in business, but you have less employees. And that would obviously, you know, you, you don't want to have to do that. So for sure, I think that's a little bit of extra. And we've also always been very conservative, as, I, as Matt was saying, like as much as possible to really be in pain when we hire. And to uh, the, the ones that I've, I didn't really obey that rule, uh, I would. It turned out poorly for us, so I think uh, that that's a good rule is to try to be conservative and make sure you're in an area and you know it well and you have pain there before you're hiring uh, into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and one thing I just want to add is that my my business partner Stuart, who as I said runs business development, he is the total opposite. You know, he obviously like we win some, we lose some, but he has always had a very positive outlook that there's, well, there's there's always more business out there, there always will be, and I think that part of that's because he's a sales guy. Right. But I, it's always been nice to have um, that balance. I think, you know, he's yeah. very positive, and I so I try to be a little more um, pessimistic so that we are careful, right? If everybody running the company is super optimistic, then I think we'd probably make really dumb expense decisions. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, that's uh, I always like hearing the stories of the good partnerships because you know you obviously hear a lot of bad partnership stories, but I feel like a good partnership would be so valuable. You know, it's such a valuable thing to have in the business. Yeah, it definitely Different is. perspectives and. Bring different things to the table. 
So I don't know. I think we sort of covered all everybody's questions during our conversation. I don't know if you, Matt, you saw the questions. Anything there that stands out that you'd like to address? I think we sort of covered everything at one point or another. Yeah, I, uh, I think so too. I, um, yeah, I think we got it. The one, I guess, the one other thing, you know, this DLJ asked if there's like a tipping point kind of thing, and um, I didn't notice a specific tipping point between doing like less than fifty thousand dollars jobs and versus six figure jobs. What I what I've noticed is that um, as you do more projects, you start getting invited to like bid on projects that are bigger than you've taken in the past, and you end up probably losing a lot of them, right? Because you're you're still not quite big enough to to get them, but you're, you're kind of entering a zone where you're being asked to bid, but you're, you're not quite good enough yet to compete against the other people that are bidding on that. And then as you do more projects, you kind of get up and you start being that company that wins all of those. And then you move to the next level and you start losing a lot of those again, right? Because you're being invited to bid on bigger, even bigger projects, but you're not quite good enough, like big enough yet to compete against the companies that are in that next level. And so it just happens in stages. That's an interesting aspect to the consulting is that, you know, you know, in the software, it's a little, it's a little less obvious sometimes, not always that you've lost, you know what I mean? Like somebody tried it and they didn't come back and you emailed them and you try to call them and all that stuff, but you know, they didn't answer and they kind of move on. Whereas when you've like created a presentation and created, you know, filled out the RFP and done all this stuff and gone in and presented and then you lose those, like, that's like, that's got a little bit of more of a personal nature to it. I feel like. Yeah, we, um, there have been projects that we've lost that I, like we would find out on a Friday afternoon and I was just literally depressed the whole weekend. Right. <laughs> you know? It's it's worse when you're sure you're going to get, I mean, sometimes you just, you bid on a project, you know, it's kind of a long shot it is what it is, yeah. but sometimes you're so convinced you're going to get this project, especially when you lose it for reasons out of your control. I mean, we've, we've lost projects that were big projects and, a, you know, the client says, we loved you so much. We absolutely loved you. We really wanted to hire you. But, you know, the CEO really wanted to hire his friend's company. Right. <laughs> what are we supposed to do? We couldn't have done anything better, you know? Right. Well, sometimes they send out those proposals for legal reasons where they have no intention of hiring anybody but who they had the intention of hiring in the first place, right? Absolutely. Totally. I, we've definitely been like the other shop that just needed to be talked to. Right. <laughs> it just is what it is. But, sometimes, but on the other hand, we've benefited, right? Because in a lot of cases, we've won projects for the same reason, <laughs> you know? Right. Right. <laughs> so. I think we kind of benefit. So here's a question because every consultant I know, like literally almost every single one, is like, we, our long term plan is to convert to having a SaaS app because that's the end all be all of everything. We must have a SaaS app. So are you guys comfortable? I mean, you're, you're a little bit bigger than most of them. So I feel like you're probably a little bit more comfortable in general. But do you guys have a long term kind of software goal? I know you have these little, you know, the carts and things, but that's kind of a secondary initiative. But like, would you, you know, at some point, do you want to have a big software application or are you just focused on the consulting thing and you're good with that? Um, I mean, who knows what the future will bring, but I, I will say that is not an immediate goal of mine. Yeah. I, first of all, I think that people see SaaS app. It's funny because I think a lot of SaaS app creators see consulting revenue as like, oh, great, it's so lucrative. And a lot right. of consultants <laughs> see SaaS apps like, oh my God, it's so lucrative. And so it's right. overcurring revenue. It's great. You know, right. the grass is always greener. Um, Absolutely. I, I think we're very good at being consultants. I think that we, it's fun working on different projects and bringing learnings from some projects into other industries. Mm. And so um, I understand the benefits of a SaaS app. I totally get it. And it's, it's not something I'm dismissing, but it's not like an immediate goal of mine. I, I would really like us to focus on just getting bigger and bigger agency projects. How do you put that aside? Because one of the things I have 
a huge problem with is just always coming up with different ideas. Like I just have ideas all the time, just as like going through the day on different things I see or whatever. And um, like when you're in these other people's businesses, you know, so deeply, I imagine you must just see lots of different opportunities um, and, you know, kind of putting those aside. Um, well, that's, yeah, the, that's the headspace you're in. You're a products guy. Yeah, maybe so. that's it. Maybe it's my headspace. <laughs> Right, exactly. Because when I'm in these other businesses and I see opportunities, for me as a as an agency, we say, "Oh my God, you know, this client hired us for one thing. We should just totally pitch them to also solve this other problem for them." Right, right. You know, and we could maybe save them a lot of money. They pay us, and we we automate some process for them, and it more than pays for itself. So that's as Andre totally accurately said, it's a headspace. Yeah, because I'd see that and be like, okay, like every business like this has the same problem. So we could build a tool that does it for everybody. Right. You, know what I mean? you see it as a tool um, and he sees it as another project to build against. Right. right. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't want to, yeah, go ahead. No, we're well, going over an hour. I don't want to, I don't know how much time Matt has for us. Well, I just wanted to have one, uh, I have one very serious question here. We right. got to talk about games a little bit. Do you play games? What, well, what's why your do you do situation? this to Matt? <laughs> what's your game situation? You, like video games? Yeah, like, video games. Video games. No, unfortunately. Stop right, it. You know what? Although the other night we had we had um, dinner with some friends and went back to their house and they, they had brought out like a Nintendo Wii, like an original Nintendo Wii. And right. my wife has never, ever played video games. And so this, she, for the first time ever, tried Rock Band. Okay. And she was and she was enthralled. She was singing "Living on a Prayer." I have it on. It was, I put it on Snapchat. It was fantastic. You're gonna I have saw. to get into this now. There you go. You get one of those for probably like fifty bucks or something. So. We'll talk about video games next episode, Lensman. <laughs> all right, all right. See, I just Andre's big in the video games. I'm not in the video games generally either, but I've been playing them recently. So now I'm kind of. I, don't know, I think he's like rubbing off on me here or something. I don't know, but. <laughs> Yeah, right. not so much. I have two young kids. Like you know, I have a ten-month-old and a three-year-old. So I maybe it's just I don't I don't have a lot of time for that right now. When the three-year-old gets a little bigger, yeah, we'll yeah. For sure. So Matt, do you have any any questions or anything you'd like to say or anything going on? Because we've been uh, asking questions and there's no opportunity for you to ask questions. No, you know, one thing I just want to say is I, I do want to thank you guys not only for having me on. To I feel like I monopolized all conversations all time, which is not my intent, but um. I do think it's really important for, you know, bootstrap type businesses. And, and that includes us, right? We've never taken investment. We've never taken debt and anything like that right. um, to understand that there are other companies like that. I think it's really important because we live in this very weird zone where companies are glorified for raising a hundred million dollars. And then, Oh, they went bankrupt two years later. Like who cares? Right. right? Nobody hears about that. Right. It's, I think it's so bizarre. And I think, I totally understand the purpose of venture capital. I think there's a lot of businesses that could probably never exist without that, but sure. I think that it's good to also celebrate just being profitable and being cash flow positive. <laughs> and you know, like we are cash flow positive and so 40 people at Vector like can feed their families and it's great. I don't have to worry about that. So I and you guys have the same thing, right? So I, I really want to thank you guys for making sure people understand that it's it's great to be that kind of company. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a, one of those things. What's crazy is that you know, n- you know, ninety nine percent of businesses never have any funding, you know, outside of maybe some friends and family money or whatever. So it's like, it's weird how we have to make this space and give it a term for like what is normal business in the whole rest of the world, um, except kind of this internet software space where it's you know all the publicity goes to this kind of edge cases. But right, I hate I hate this term like lifestyle business, which oh, people, yeah. people worst. that are, you know, 
people that have venture capital, they say that in the most condescending tone. Right. They say, oh, so you're a lifestyle business? My, my lifestyle is that I get up in the morning, commute to work, do work, and come home. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, lifestyle business, I guess, means cash flow positive. But <laughs> so, again, I totally understand and appreciate that a lot of, a lot of companies, um, if they need venture capital for certain problems, I totally get that. But I would prefer not as much condescension <laughs> in the term lifestyle <laughs> business from some people. We got to start up like, TechCrunch for bootstrappers, where we only cover bootstrap companies. That'd be kind of cool. Somebody needs to do crunch. that. Strap bootstrap crunch. crunch. There we go. I wish I was a journalist. I mean, I'd do that. Somebody who's listening to this, somebody do that, and we'll we'll push your stuff. So uh, somebody go out and do that. The three of us all get ten percent. Right. right, right. <laughs> we did just come up with this idea right here. So we should we'll split ten percent. I think that's fair. We'll each kick in a thousand bucks. And we ten percent. We're gonna we're gonna VC back. We're gonna angel fund our bootstrapped news uh, blog. So there you go. <laughs> Any anything else, Ian? You guys? I know I'm good. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, Matt. It was uh, awesome. And uh, thank you, yeah, Matt. Hopefully, get to see you soon in person uh, at, at some event or another, or get down to your office and, and hang with the crew. That'd be great. Like Just I said, if you there. ever start doing courses on how to grow a consultancy, I would, I would, I would commute to Manhattan to take those courses. There you go. <laughs> That's Do a the meetup. Did the consultants agency meetup. Yeah. Meet I want like a full two week thing on Intensive. how to go from like the mechanics, the logistics, uh, everything down and dirty, how to get from freelance into a 30 people agency. Like I, I want. You just got it. it. We just did. No, it. I want like I is. want like the, like like here are the lines on the contract. Here's what you do now. I want like the full a- intensive agency thing. in a box. Yes. There you go. I, I would show up and pay money for that. <laughs> Matt right, well, is the right if, person to do that. I would I would gladly pay you money to take this course. Go ahead, set them up. If I do it, you'll be the uh, first person I invite. Absolutely. And then I'll that. come on and I'll come on your show again to show for it. Sounds good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks. Have a good one. Thanks so much. Thank you.